This is The Way Forward. I'm Judy Olian, President of Quinnipiac University. We're podcasting conversations with interesting thought leaders who are seeking solutions to today's challenges. In this episode, Quinnipiac's Dean of the School of Communications, Chris Rausch, hosts a provocative conversation with guests Matt Murray, Editor-in-Chief of the Wall Street Journal, and Peter Spiegel, U.S. Managing Editor of the Financial Times. They talk about managing newsrooms, informing the public, and navigating ideological tensions during the coronavirus pandemic and the final stretch of the presidential election. They also discuss how they've handled the transition to a remote operation, managing the news with journalists who no longer work or exchange ideas side by side. Thanks for joining us on The Way Forward. Good afternoon and welcome to The Way Forward. This is the speaker series from Quinnipiac University President Judy Olian. We're having thoughtful conversations about today's social, economic, and health challenges given the COVID pandemic and talking about ideas that will drive solutions for tomorrow. Joining us today for our panel discussion are two very distinguished journalists. We have Matt Murray, who is editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones Newswire. He is responsible for all global news gathering and editorial operations. Matt has previously served as executive editor of the paper, and before that was deputy editor-in-chief. He joined Dow Jones in 1994 as a reporter in the Pittsburgh Bureau. Also joining us is Peter Spiegel, who is U.S. Managing Editor of the Financial Times. He oversees all editorial operations in the United States and the Americas from its regional headquarters in New York. Peter assumed that position in April 2019 after spending three years as a news editor in London, where he oversaw the daily FT news operations, both in print and online. Peter and Matt, thank you for joining us today. Thanks Good to be here. We also have joining us Daryl Richard, who's the Vice President of Marketing and Communications. And Daryl and I will be asking questions uh, from uh, to Matt and Peter uh, about how they've been managing their newsrooms during the pandemic. Uh, and we'll also be opening it up for questions. So. Uh, if you've got questions for either Peter or Matt or for both of them, uh, please don't hesitate to post those in chat. We have somebody who will be funneling, funneling those questions to us. So Matt and Peter, let's just get started. Um, I'm interested in hearing from both of you about how your jobs have changed in the last four months and how you've kept a actual printed newspaper going uh, <laughs> without actually seeing the people that you're working with uh, physically. Here, um, well, it hasn't been easy. <laughs> the, you're right to, to to flag up the physical newspaper bit of this. I mean, we have, you know, uh, along with with Matt and the Journal, moved very aggressively to to prioritize our digital offering, and that's the growth area. Uh, that's the place we see financially and 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 economically the future of the industry. But we still have a, for lack of a better word, legacy print product that we need to maintain. And and I always say it's a single point of failure. If you don't get the print product out, there's something missing on people's doorsteps the next day. Um, so we were very nervous about this. Um, we actually, for the first few weeks, had a very skeleton crew going into the office uh, to produce the newspaper. And then we decided one day to cut the cord, did it all remotely, and we held our breath, and, and, and it's, it's, it's gone well. Now, 
part of the thing we have had to do is move up deadlines a bit, um, you know, make sure that we're, we're, you know, sometimes the late breaking stories will not make it uh, into the paper. But we've also seen a concomitant, you know, decline in circulation in print. We've seen, I think, you know, having know people at the journal, having worked there myself, you know, I think both of us have gone through a huge spike in online subscription, online traffic. Um, so we've seen a growth in our, in our, in our online traffic, but the print uh, has come down for various reasons. One, you know, we, for instance, circulate a lot on, on airplanes, uh, Lufthansa, BA, um, but even just the logistics of getting newspaper to newsstands because of lockdowns, uh, we've seen the print circulation go down. So it's accelerated our, our push into in, in, into the, the digital and, and towards frankly making the print edition almost not an afterthought because we need it to be a quality product but a less important product um, but thus far you know holding our breath we have had not a huge amount of hiccups we've been able to do it all virtually we do things like this we have sort of constant uh, uh, calls on Google Hangout where members of the newspaper team gather uh, and sort stories and they'll jump into the New York call or jump into the to the European call to, to, to figure out what the, the, the the stuff they can take for the web and put on in the print edition, um, but that's what we were most nervous at. And 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 you know, knock on wood, uh, thus far we haven't missed, missed an edition. Uh, in our case, I'd say a couple things. Um, so we have really, in the last few years, restructured to be so digitally oriented that, in a certain sense, getting print ready was a discrete task. We have a print desk that essentially has the lines of communication with uh, their, their counterparts in the newsroom, and they become quite adept at putting the paper together downstream without too much connection to the rest of the process. So the challenge of getting that team to work remotely was real, but they do it, and it's actually been pretty seamless to move them over. Um, I think uh, there's been other good news in that sense, despite the, the, the uh, 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 difficult conditions of being away. So we, we've done other things that we've innovated quickly on. So the journal already had moved to sending a PDF to all subscribers of the paper that comes just after midnight. We had an e-reader product that wasn't very good. We moved to upgrade that e-reader product, uh, e product in a few weeks so we could offer it to people who were getting their uh, print uh, paper interrupted. So we've actually innovated pretty quickly on the fly. I mean, I think the biggest challenge um, in a general sense for us is news gathering, just the sheer process of connecting the reporter, the editor, the visual person, and doing reporting and getting outside the confines that this technology puts on you. And I'd say for the first couple months, we came out of the gate, you know, very, everybody, it was of the moment, emotions were high, it's gotten tougher as time's gone, time has gone by. That being said, the fact that we're forced to connect this way is building some bonds and connectivity that I think will actually do as well in the future. Now, you talked a little bit about the news gathering process. Um, so I think about journalists, they're both in a, they're in an interesting yet precarious position when it comes to news gathering in a COVID era, right? So they, they need to be on the front lines, they need to be amidst all of it and interact with to really get the stories, but at the same time, I'm sure there's a lot of concern for their own personal safety. So how have you and Peter have been both having conversations with your staffs about that balance? And have you been detecting a lot of anxiety around how reporters do that balance in terms of when they can actually get out into the field to, to gather what they need? In our case, there's definitely anxiety and people definitely feel it, but uh, we just have a simple rule. Nobody should go into any situation to do any reporting that makes them personally uncomfortable. Their personal safety and feeling of security is paramount. So uh, I don't want any editor talking a reporter into taking on something they don't want to do. Secondarily, 
you know, in the last five years or so across the journal, we've instilled a much deeper, fuller security training, medical training, so that when we send you in the field, you've got to be trained and ready to go and be in contact with us. Now, admittedly, we never really thought in setting that up that it would be as extensively needed in the United States of America as it might be in the Middle East or other places, but we've, we've been doing training with people as they've gone out and put them in the field in, in, in careful circumstances. So I think that the, the anxiety that you describe is real, but it's worked, it's worked pretty well for us, I think. Yeah, it's pretty similar for us. I, I would say the one thing that, that helps is the wrong word, but, but certainly both Matt's news organization and mine, look, we're financial news organizations, right? That is our bread and butter. That's our core uh, of what we do, business, corporate, finance. And most of those people have not gotten back to the office either. So if we suddenly said, go out in the field and report, there's no one actually to have lunch with or to, or to meet with anymore because they're all in the same environment. Uh, so I think we've had there has been, as Matt said, we've had similar anxieties. We have a similar rule that no one who doesn't want to go out shouldn't go out. Uh, I think the, 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 the George Floyd protest uh, sort of put us in a, in a, in a difficult position because, uh, again, we were very nervous about not only police clearly targeting journalists in, in, in several of these, but also the prospect of, of, of spreading the, the COVID. So, um, again, we picked some of our more senior uh, correspondents to go out. Um, made sure that, 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 as Matt said, that they had the proper training and, and, and were guided in that direction. But by and large, most of our news gathering now uh, for a financial news organization is covering people who are not in their offices. So it actually has not been quite as much of a, a concern that, as, as I anticipated. Well, I'll tell you a good one. We had, um, we, we, uh, and it, I, I think this is fair versus the FT. We would do more general news reporting on and about in the United States. It, the, the, the journalist thing is interesting because certain uh, views people have come out. So we had a journalist, I won't say where, but we had a journalist out reporting on lockdowns in the Midwest a couple months ago and an aide to the governor in that state uh, who knew our journalist was doing that started calling all the local businesses and officials saying, don't talk to this person, don't and harassing the journalist through the locals, trying to sick the police. Uh, on the journalist uh, because they didn't want the journalist there. And so, you know, we fired off a pretty sharp letter to the governor who apologized for it. But interesting stuff like that that you wouldn't have thought about happening, you know, in Midwestern states not that long ago has happened. Yeah. Matt, before we started, we were, you and I were talking about how you miss being in the newsroom. Is, do you feel like anything is lost in the ability to uh, to interact with your reporters and editors in the newsroom and, and brainstorm that way? Uh, totally. Me with them and really them with each other. I mean, look, I, I feel I'm romantic about this, this topic. I'm not romantic about too many things, but, you know, I went into the news. One of the reasons I became a journalist, I think a lot of people go to newsrooms is because there's an excitement, a frisson in the air in a good newsroom. You're producing a product in real time all the time. It used to be daily, which was exciting enough, but now it's all the time. You're around a lot of creative and smart people, uh, connecting on different things. There's a there's both a, an individual element and a collaborative element to it. You're in the middle of talking about current events and current affairs, and you can bump into different people at different times and places. And uh, the rules of behavior and conduct in the newsroom are a little looser than they tend to be in the, your standard corporate setting, you know? So that's when you start out in your career, that's a, that's a plus. And, and so that kind of energy and excitement and the kind of um, interaction that comes uh, just between people in the hallway or just running into somebody and talking about stories, I miss that enormously. I really, I, I love my wife and my daughter, but I do miss leaving the house and spending time with my colleagues that way for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is just, I mean, it really, uh, you know, Matt, even just talking about it, you know, makes me nostalgic. I mean, look, we are a self-selecting group. We are, journalists, by definition, are extroverts, you know, uh, and as a result, we like to be in, in settings where we're interacting with people. It's part of the reason we got into the business. Uh, I think there also is a, how do you put it, you know, it, it isn't degrade coverage, but things that would happen elsewhere in terms of, you know, connecting dots doesn't happen as easily. And again, I think it's very important, particularly when you have a market meltdown that accompanied the, the coronavirus coverage. You know, we have various teams. We have, our, have our, our economic team, we have our markets team, we have our financial services team. And in general, in the New York office, they sit together. And so something that's happening in the markets, they can go talk to the banking correspondent saying, I think this is gonna have an impact on your bank. The economics guys can say, well, actually, this is why it's happening economically. So you begin to be able to pull together the broader narrative of what's happening, why the, what's happening in the markets may or may not reflect what's happening in the real economy. Um, those conversations are much harder to have when you're not just sitting next to each other and, and, and having that, that conversation with the editor popping in and that kind of stuff. The other thing we have found, um, and you know, as Matt said, we're, you know, we're a bit smaller obviously here in the US than we are, but <clears throat> we are really spread out internationally. So you had you know, spikes in the virus in you know, Germany and you had spikes in Italy and then we had spikes in New York. And what we found was, <clears throat> you know, okay, we got a correspondent in our, our, you know, our health correspondent in New York is gonna do a piece on, on ventilators. And she's getting ready to file, oh, wait a second, we have a Germany ventilator story. Oh, we got an Italy ventilator story. You know, the, the, the ability to sort of even coordinate from a managing perspective has been much more of a challenge because again, you're not in the newsroom. There's not an overhearing of the, the foreign editor talking to the New York Bureau and the, and the, and the, and the Berlin Bureau. Um, so some of that stuff has been problematic as well. But again, to, just to echo Matt, the thing I think we miss the most is just the fun of being a reporter is being in that newsroom and interacting with, with really smart, fun, uh, interesting colleagues. So we um, received one of our first questions from our uh, a panelist, and um, so one of our own student journalists actually here at Quinnipiac was wondering from the both of you, um, so how has the pandemic affected the way your staff has been able to report on Black Lives Matter protests, police violence, and more importantly, your ability to have conversations in the newsroom about the action, about those diversity topics, um, and about those how those stories take shape? Yeah, I mean, it's been difficult. I mean, no doubt about it. I mean, again, from the point of view, both logistically, but also from a from a, a morale and, and uh, kind of way, it's both been very, very difficult. Logistically, as I said, you know, we were very nervous about the two things were very early on, it became apparent to us that police in some of these cities were targeting journalists. Uh, and that really got us uh, very, very nervous about security of our, our staff. And then the issue of spread. Uh, we were wanted to make sure that no journalist who was assigned to these covering these protests um, were were in any way worried about catching it. And we were afraid that even some of the journalists who wanted to go out there were going to expose themselves. So that was a logistic thing was incredibly difficult. But it was a very emotional event for the for for the newsroom. I mean, we have you know people who have experienced some of this stuff um, and trying to pick up the vibe in the newsroom and, and you know, look, we like almost every other major uh, news organization in, in, the, in, the, in the Western Hemisphere are, are, are frankly bad at diversity in the newsroom. We've been trying to get better, uh, we haven't been successful. And so there was a lot of emotion tied to that and trying to uh, try to cover the, the story objectively and deal with some very fraught and, and emotions in the newsroom. It would have been easier if we were, were in the newsroom and instead we had to do sort of these, these town hall calls uh, you know, on, on, on Zoom and on, 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 on Google Hangout, they're impersonal. It, it's hard to, to put your arm around a colleague if you're not in the same room. So look, it, it's not tough. I'm not sure any of it got it right, um, but um, you know, it, it's been a challenge that we've had to work through. 
Yeah, I, I agree with all those thoughts. I think that the, the, for some colleagues, the pain that they're feeling in the moment, uh, the frustration they're feeling um, is, it's hard to acknowledge when you're doing it remotely and it's accentuated by being remote. Uh, they're indoors, they're, they're, they're quarantined, they're frustrated, they're isolated. Um, they're in touch with each other virtually, but but just the whole process of communicating, talking, sharing thoughts, getting into it has been much much tougher. And helping helping think through ideas and and and, and helping people try to try to help 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 people feel better is just much more difficult. Um, so it's been a challenge. I mean, in terms of reporting, I think. Um, I think when you've got protests, uh, when you've got action on the streets, the concerns Peter raised are real. And we had a reporter who was uh, knocked over by a police officer in uh, in New York City, and uh, was a bit of an incident. Uh, for instance, um, it's uh, there's challenges there. I will say, I think uh, it's such an important and great story journalists want to be out there covering it. And so getting people to go cover it, they, they feel that feels like a really meaningful thing for them to be doing. So there's a little aspect of that there too. Right. We've got another question from uh, the audience and, and this is kind of tied to what we were just talking about uh, in terms of uh, tensions being high right now. How do, you, how do you guard against bias in your coverage? I mean, it's it, that's a complicated question, and it's not necessarily a question that is different in nature now than at any normal time. Uh, I think what's maybe harder now, um, uh, or harder in the moment a little bit, are maybe two things. One, communicating to the whole staff. This is how we do things. This is why we do them. This is what we think is important. It's just more of a challenge in this moment. Uh, communication on every front is harder remoteness, uh, including feeling remote from, from, from uh, the, the leadership is, is tougher. And secondly, um, and I think every journalist is wrestling with this in a very serious and profound way and a very thoughtful way. Um, you know, when you're, you're, when you're dealing with uh, uh, the death of George Floyd and the feelings it stirs about race in this country and the history of racism in this country, and the difficulty, it is very, very, it is one of the hardest kinds of stories as a journalist to try to separate your emotions and your strong feelings about truth from the journalistic responsibility and to know where that line lies. And people of great intentions and uh, serious sober thought about it sometimes would draw those lines in different places. So you also have a moment uh, in the, amid the current challenges of communication where, you know, we all say we want to have conversations. We all say we want to talk about these things, but having those conversations is harder remotely and, and having people be honest in, in, in sharing thoughts is harder remotely. So it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, but I think, I think fundamentally, I think this is probably true of the FT too, um, we are having debates about the lines and discussions, and I know some journalists feel differently about these things than I do, and some of their editors do, but I think the quality of the conversation that we're having about it is pretty high, and the sincerity and good intentions of everybody is pretty high, and frankly, we've moved as editors too, you know, we, Grace in America is not a story the Wall Street Journal had covered consistently and thoughtfully 
for over long periods of time. We'd done some great work at moments of time, but we hadn't uh, we hadn't uh, thought it through as deeply as we should have, and we're doing that now, and that's important, and that's partly from journalists pushing us too. So it's it's a challenge for people. It's a cha it's a challenge to let people know in a moment when everything is divided and everything feels that it's so high stakes that what we do as journalists and how we do it and the way that we do it really does matter to really its own social contribution too. That can feel uh, frustrating as an explanation for people, but I, but I also really believe it to be true. So trying to reemphasize that again and again, you know, we're bearing witness, we're writing the stories, we're speaking to large groups of people. If we stay as fair as we can be and, and show that we don't have a bias, actually, our ability to influence the conversation and get people to hear unpleasant things is greater because they trust us. And that's really important. Um, but it, you know, the having that, we have to remind people of that message for sure, because they obviously, it's a very, very emotional, difficult uh, time for a lot of people. Sorry, Peter. No, no. I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I just the the, the, the all the sort of the, the slogan of media bias always sort of scratches me slightly because I, I just think it's it's a cheap way of describing what happens in the news gathering process. Look, news judgment is not a science, right? It is, you know, it is the collective wisdom of a fallible group of human beings who run any news organization. And one person, you know, you see all this anger on Twitter that this is biased and stuff like that. Those same debates happen in editorial conference every day. And, you know, I think to say that that media is biased is, is, is unfair in that we are a human organization that has to make judgments every day. And sometimes we get it right. And sometimes we get it very wrong. So I, I think, you know, there was the thing that always would slightly bother me also about the issue of bias is I remember it was Len Downey um, um, who would not vote um, because he wanted to make sure that he was unbiased. And I think we all come to the table with our own experiences, with our own biases. And the thing is to acknowledge them and then try to put them away. Um, and I think to Matt's point is if you feel very strongly about these issues, you have an incredibly powerful tool to deal with them, and it's called journalism go out and report on these these things. Go out and give these people voices you think they haven't had voices. And I would, you know, again, even more so, as Matt pointed out, you know, the, the FT, particularly in the U.S., is is not a general interest news organization to the extent that the journal is. Um, so we haven't covered a lot of these issues. But it's hit us very much, I would, I've argued internally, much like the Brexit vote did. And uh, bear with me, because it's not a perfect ex uh, parallel. But we woke up, uh, and I was in London, as, as, as Chris said, I was the news editor, I was running the, the day-to-day operations of the news organization. And boy, did we miss this, right? I mean, we are nominally a London-based news organization. There was a whole swath of Middle England, working-class England, that voted for Brexit, and we were kept saying it's never going to happen. What we did is we decided that we needed to cover this bit of England better, um, and we assigned it a foreign correspondent, an American, uh, and just said, your job is to go out and find this community we clearly have underreported on, mostly white working class in, in Middle England, in Newcastle, and some of the, in Wales, and some of these, these cities that have been bypassed by globalization, and said, your job is to report on these things that we clearly have missed. And I think we have looked at this moment as something very similar. This is a story we have missed. We have missed a whole bit of the, of the, of the population that has been bypassed, that has not had, uh, if you look at employment figures, you look at the things we cover as our core you know, economic uh, coverage, they have been bypassed by what has happened in the U.S. over the last 20, 30 years. We need to then focus on that because it's a story we missed. And we're, again, we're 
getting, uh, we're signing a reporter to do that, we're hiring a reporter to do that, uh, sort of the, the, the political economy of race in America. And that's pretty much something that we think now is core to what we do in terms of covering economics, covering finance, uh, covering business. And it's, it's, I think, you know, as news organizations, sometimes we just have to put our hands up and say, um, hey, we missed this story, let's get it right the next time. Yeah, this issue of bias, we'll expand it a little too. We started talking a little bit around politics, um, but that's another area where I think folks see more and more, uh, there's a call out for more fact checking, not just fact checking that would be a standard part of the journalistic integrity and process, but publicly having to post fact checking examples, uh, some journalists or some outlets uh, on a regular basis to sort of illustrate uh, the point counterpoint what they've done. Um, but also I'm wondering if, um, has it exacerbated that need because of the lack of access to a lot of sources, particularly in a COVID era? I'll say a COVID era where you can't access those sources in person, but also with the digital era. So more and more sources, whether it be individuals or organizations are sort of using their own digital platforms as the place to issue their communications and not sort of allow access to reporters. Um, Peter, I think one of your own reporters was chiming in our, our chat here with a Q&A explain that you know he has found that himself with some of his sources he would typically go to who now it's all we'll issue our statement online sort of we'll issue our communication online and and that's that you don't have that chance for the count uh, point count pointer point or the rebuttal of a certain type of line of questioning so has that exacerbated a little bit of this feeling of bias in, in news media or the, or the access to the facts I guess so but I frankly I think it's a two-way street I mean one of the things that has kept governments, and I guess governments plural, worldwide, honest, is the fact that health organizations are putting out the data on, you know, new cases, new death, new fatality rates. I mean, one of our most successful uh, piece of online content in the history of the Financial Times was one of our digital journals back in London decided he was going to track on a daily basis how the countries compared themselves. And it became sort of what we got known for at the FT in our coverage. Again, it's, it's you know, millions and millions of page, page views, the most successful thing we've ever done. So the, the, actually, the fact of the matter is that, that some of the, the innovations in digital journalism plays perfectly well into the current environment. And, 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 and frankly, if it hadn't been for some of our digital journalists who are tracking these things, I think a lot of governments would, would be, you know, uh, you know, you know, we've had governments that have misled their people on these issues. So in that respect, I think it's, it's, it's been actually in some ways helpful. Um, now, the issue of, of, you know, just read our Twitter account, you know, we'll put out a statement. You know, I think that's, that is certainly complicating things. Um, you know, I think it complicates us, frankly, but from a, both a, a news gathering point of view, but obviously a commercial point of view. Uh, you know, it's, it's no secret, nine out of 10, every ad, ad dollars uh, online goes to, goes to Facebook and, and, and Amazon, not, to, not to, to Matt and I or news organizations. Um, but to be honest with you, it, it is in some ways always thus. Um, there were always going to be companies and, and governments and, and you know, financial institutions that were going to try to bring journalists in and explain to them uh, what they were doing and why they were doing it. And there were some that were just not gonna talk to you and you had to work around uh, to find other, other points of entry to tell those stories. So I'm not sure that is that different. The, the, the hard thing is you can't just sort of say, let's go grab lunch. You meet someone at a conference, you have a, a chat, you know, some of the ways that you, you cultivated sources in the past and developed human relationships just don't exist now. And you can't just say, hey, I want to just set up a casual Zoom call with you to chat for about nothing for a half hour. Right. Uh, so those, those processes in which you, you, you source develop, you develop relationships with people in banks, in private equity firms, in governments, they're very, if you don't have pre-existing relationships, it's very hard to suddenly develop them uh, in, in, a, in this kind of environment. 
Look, I'll, I this is a this is a, a tangential thought. I think that the online world has for a while anyway, and uh, raised the stakes for individual journalists that much more on your prior question about showing that you're fair and unbiased because you're living in a world and companies are just people putting out their own press releases are just one of many many voices. But but the work you produce will be so much more transparent, so much more picked apart. Uh, your Twitter account as a journalist exposes you to accusations of bias every day and the digital world uh, is filled with trolls of all political stripes who actively want to hurt journalists and journalism. So, you know, it's all of a piece to me in the digital context. And that's why one, the world needs fair and uh, straight reporting without uh, a political agenda. Uh, more than it maybe did at different times. And two, why as a journalist, you're more on the spot to prove every day that you can do that because you do have to prove it every day. The, the gatekeeper assumption that an institution per se is fair because of the institutional power and access it has, that's gone. On the other hand, the authority you can win as a fair uh, institution uh, is still there to be one and you have you just have to be out there every day so it's changed that for journalists quite a bit yeah thanks Matt we've we've got another question from uh, one of our, our student journalists here at Quinnipiac can you elaborate on how you think COVID and this time will affect the future of international bureaus and global reporting <laughs> Uh, I can start on that, I guess. Um, uh, look, uh, we were already in a crisis, uh, I would say, on international reporting heading into this because of the financial condition of, uh, of most U.S. media organizations. Uh, they've already paired so far back on international reporting. And, and even more broadly, I think we tend to be uh, right now in a moment uh, in the United States where we are particularly inward looking. And so we're very focused on our own internal uh, place. And so I think international news was already in a severe crisis coming into this. I don't know that this uh, particularly changes the game with the possible exception of the fact that because this is such an international incident, Maybe it'll help news organizations think about uh, the connectivity of the United States to other places, to think about organizations like the WHO. But I think at this point in the United States, uh, there's, a, there's a handful of big organizations who are committed to international reporting. It would be us, the FT, Reuters, the AP, the New York Times. I think barring financial pressures on the industry, I don't see any of those who are doing it really pulling back, I guess is what I see. I think, you know, for good or for, well, I would say for good. I mean, the, 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 it's been slightly different for us um, because we do see, we're not, a, we're not a domestic news organization in any market that we're in. I always we, like to- We are a foreign, you, this is a foreign bureau. For well, exactly. I, I always like to say we're the only major news organization in the world, and I think it's true, that has more readers outside its home market than inside its home market. We have about a third in the UK, a third in the US, and a third in continental Europe. Uh, and then sort of a smattering uh, in Asia. So we, everyone, you know, there's a huge percentage of our staff that are foreign bureaus. And in many ways, my pitch to American readers is, you know, come to the FT, we give you the world. So we have had less pressure on us than perhaps um, some some domestic U.S. press on 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 bureaus. So we have made sure that we've 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 ring fenced a lot of our investment in in the foreign network. The problem we've had is slightly different, which is 
there are countries, and uh, you know, the U.S. may be one of them, uh, that have handled the coronavirus crisis so badly that that pe- reporters who would normally be really enthusiastic, particularly going into the developed world, the developing world, um, now are a little bit reticent to go. We've had this particular issue with some of our from our India bureaus, where we've had you know people who have been really enthusiastic about getting out to Delhi or, or Mumbai, who've said, "Gosh, the way they're handling this, I'm not so sure I want to take my family up there anymore." Uh, some of our bureaus in Sub-Saharan Africa, same concerns. Uh, so we, the problem that we've had has been more internal logistics on on personnel and making sure they're safe and making sure they're comfortable in their bureaus um, in places that the healthcare systems are not quite as developed uh, and, and that kind of thing. So it's been less of a, a financial issue than more of a personnel logistics issue for us. The, the biggest thing happening in the moment, I would say, on all foreign bureaus is the U.S.-China relationship. And so the, the one of the tragedies, and COVID has been part of it, but only a part of it, is coverage of China already uh, a challenge, which we've been committed to for a long time as a VFT, is gonna be chilled. And uh, and just at a time when understanding China is as important as it's ever been, maybe more important than it's ever been, that's, that's, that's gonna be difficult. Some organizations uh, where they've had a foreign correspondent or two in recent years have tended to be in China. Um, uh, so that's that's the big story happening right now on, on foreign reporting from the American perspective. Yeah, and just to add to that, I mean, we're getting slightly off on a tangent, but obviously the Hong Kong security law has also impacted a lot of us as well. I mean, we have our Asia headquarters in Hong Kong. Some of these measures are clearly aimed at foreign media. Uh, the New York Times recently announced they're moving most of their digital uh, news operations out of Hong Kong to Seoul. Um, we are, as many people know, owned by a Japanese news organization now, Nikkei, which is sort of the FT Wall Street Journal of Japan. So we have you know, infrastructure we can fall back on, on in Tokyo, but it's suddenly become a very, very difficult story. You know, even if it wasn't for COVID, uh, because of the pressures that the Chinese government have put on mostly American, but certainly uh, Western in general news organizations operating inside China and, and particularly now in Hong Kong. Yeah, so and I think it would be accurate to say a lot of news organizations pre-COVID were under a lot of financial pressure. There's a lot of consolidation do you see that accelerating specifically because of COVID? We're seeing it in many industries as a result, of course, but news organizations in particular, do you think more and more will consolidate, merge, some just go out of business? Yeah. Um, a related question to that, will that potentially then risk fewer and fewer diversity of outlets for readers to go to, to consume information that informs different perspectives versus seeking out uh, editorial coverage that just sort of validates their own opinion beforehand? I would say yes and yes. Uh, I mean, uh, we're seeing it. You know, we're, we, we're, the digital, it's been a disastrous year for digital media. Vox just had more cuts this week and the models that seem so hopeful um, uh, um, five years ago, is, is, it was already troubled heading into it and it's worse. We're, we, you know, depending on, we have a total advertising recession uh, if you're advertising supported. Uh, there is a readership subscription model, but you have to have attained a certain mass to do that, which requires a fair amount of skills and special specialty and technology, and and it's a difficult model to build from scratch. Local news continues to wither on the vine, and almost every week there's stories of, of local papers falling apart. And I, I think what you touched on at the end uh, is important, which is... Um, People will go where the money is, and that often right now means partisan sites of both parties and uh, opinion sites and other things that are remaking the news ecosystem in front of us. So, uh, yeah, I think I think the trends that were underway have been 
radically accelerated in the last few months. I mean, being one of the few senior Americans in a British news organization, I always try to be the optimist. Um, I will try to be optimistic here. It's been very, very difficult. I mean, again, um, you know, I was one of the great enthusiasts for places, as Matt said, Vox and BuzzFeed. I mean, you know, the, the, the hope I always had was this is going to shake up. There's money to be made in 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 journalism. We just got to figure out the, mo the model. And it was really heartening to see places like BuzzFeed in particular, which I've spent a lot of time looking at, morph from a slightly kooky, listicle kind of place to do proper journalism. And not just here in the US, they opened up operations in the UK and did some great stuff on, on, on Russian espionage in, in the UK. And then the entire thing was shut down. So that's been, that's been somewhat depressing. The only thing I will say is, you know, I think sometimes we forget that a hundred years ago, um, you know, William Randolph Hearst, yellow journalism. There was a period where there was multiple newspapers that bloomed up and then died and were partisan and were, were, were you know, uh, they were yellow. Uh, and that's why they were called yellow journalism. And I, I sometimes my hope is that we are going through that kind of that kind of uh, environment right now where it's hyperpartisan, it's splintered, you know, everyone's mad, it's, it's, it's really passionate, but eventually out of that morass will come a new model that we can identify as, as proper journalism. Um, and again, just to Matt's point also about the business model, I think sometimes people forget, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, the New York Times, these people, these, these news organizations have been actually tremendously successful in getting people to pay for their online content. I mean, we're up, gosh, 40%, I think, in the last uh, two, three years, and, you know, the you journals guys, had a bump. You guys, the journal, the Times, the Washington Post, we all probably have the most subscribers that we've ever had in our history. Right now, right? And that to me says there is a market out there for quality journalism. And, you know, it, it heartens me to see that, you know, as, as horrible as the coronavirus crisis has been, our numbers are almost double what they were at the peak of the Brexit crisis, which was our previous all time high. And um, people are willing to show up and pay. And in some ways, the, the fake news or whatever you want to call it, the propaganda uh, uh, trends in, in media has helped us. People are saying, I need a trusted brand. I want to pay for it because I need to know facts. And that's what the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal uh, provides. So I like to be optimistic. Uh, there are days where it's very difficult to be, but I will try to be the optimist. I mean, I think for the biggest organizations, those numbers are a reason for optimism. I think they're part of the reshaping of the landscape. Um, but I look, I'll make one more point. Often when we talk about these and panels and conferences. We also talk very much through the print, legacy print lens. And, you know, television news is where most Americans get their news, their local television news station. And I think they've been hit by advertising and some other pressures, but the local television news uh, ecosystem, I think, is, is you know, reasonably robust, particularly compared to the print ecosystem. So for better or worse, local t your local TV channels where most Americans have gotten their news for a long time. Could, could both of you talk a little bit about uh, election coverage coming up and, and how you're thinking about that, given that maybe the candidates won't be going out and having uh, things around the country? How, how, do you, how do you plan on covering an election, given the fact that the candidates may be remote? Matt, why don't you deal with that? You have a bigger operation here doing that kind of stuff. I mean, the reality is, even if they're not out and about, it's, 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 in some ways, that's a plus. We have reporters assigned to each candidate, and, and they can write about uh, their policy positions, and they follow them. And the president's out there a fair bit right now, and uh, 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 the vice president's getting out more, too. I mean, so I think, actually, um, it's a little bit logistically challenging in the way that you suggest, Chris. But at the same time, it might also allow us to get to uh, matters of substance and policy more than uh, some of the 
theater of campaigns sometimes. Um, and uh, um, I think that's possibly to the benefit of the readers if we can do more about their policy differences, write more about their plans and programs, their taxes and, and, and where they disagree rather than uh, you know, this rally or that parade or whatever. Um, so I, I think, um, I think the, the, um, it, I think it could be, I actually think, 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 think broadly it could be fine for us in the sense that a fair amount of political coverage, uh, in a normal year is theater and show. And you're, in those years, you're stressed with how do I get substance versus this? Do I go have to cover this speech? You know, it might be, it might actually be, you know, in that sense, journalistically a little better. That's kind of my view right at this point. I, I mean, not to, to, to talk too much on this, but it's been a little bit tougher for us, I think, in that, all right, I've got this job out a year ago with the mandate of growing the U.S. audience for the Financial Times and trying to come up with a, a, a case for, all right, I'm an American, why would I read the FT over the journal uh, or, or the New York Times, which has more resources and, and, and a, a more regular uh, political coverage, why would they come to the FT? And we had a plan in place. We had set up some projects we were going to hit over the course of the next few months. And then this happened. We had to scrap the whole thing. So it's been a bit of a challenge for us um, and trying to recalibrate um, you know, what is the FT's, you know, uh, where do we bring value added to, to a, an American audience in particular? Now, the heartening thing is even our sort of, you know, our stories we're doing now have just, again, done gangbusters business. We just launched a couple of weeks ago our, our poll tracker. Now, everyone kind of does this now, which is, you know, you look at the, the, the poll of polls and we have this interactive thing where you can say, you think they're going to Arizona? Yes, no. Here's what the, what the electoral college looks like. It's, again, next to our, our coronavirus um, uh, tracker. It's the most consumed piece of, of journalism content we have online right now and vastly over indexes for the American readers. So we're doing something right. People want it. People like it. Um, but just we're trying to have to recalibrate on the fly in this one because we're not quite as well resourced as some of our U.S. rivals on this and trying to figure out what we bring to the table as a nominally foreign news organization that is trying to, to compete directly with, with Matt and, 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 uh, and our, our friends at the New York Times and the, Wall and the Washington Post. Um, it's tough. It's tough having to, 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 to change mid-course. I, I know you want to ask one more question. I want to let you do it, but I'll just add my bias, though, to be fair. My, uh, my bias, it's one of the reasons I like business journalism, is political campaigns, and particularly presidential politics, are over-covered relative to the importance of all kinds of other forces that shape our lives. And it is filled it, uh, very often, I, and I, we have great political reporters and I respect them, so uh, I don't mean any disrespect when I say this, but very often the political reporter is left during a campaign day after day after day finding something to write about today when nothing really happened. Um, that is part of, it's part of the boys in the bus. So if, if, if the moment allows us uh, with our resources to focus on the substance a little bit and avoid some of that, I think that's a net plus personally yeah. uh, just focusing on the future as we think about innovations in media what do you think will be the biggest change in how you'll report news five years from now boy it's hard to think about next week never mind five years from now <laughs> um look i mean we've all had these discussions about what does you know i, I don't want to speak for matt you know we've struggled i think like, like a lot of legacy news organizations about how to keep two feet on one on print and one on digital uh and like matt we have set up a separate 
you know, print team that, that does that separately. Um, what I worry about is it's an apocryphal story about, about Netflix um, where um, they had gone around to various news, uh, uh, um, uh, movie studios and said, hey, we're starting this, this, this streaming service and we like your content. And, um, um, you know, and famously certain executives said to, said to Netflix saying, oh, that's fine. Sounds like a great idea. We'll give you our content. But, you know, if this gets big, we're just going to move into that, that sector and we're just going to crush you. And the response from the Netflix people was, yeah, maybe, but you're going to be doing a lot of other things. And this is the only thing we're doing. And I worry slightly that as a legacy news organization that has to keep tabs on both, um, someone in the digital sphere is going to figure this out uh, and figure out a new model um, that, that could come after the Wall Street Journal, the, the Financial Times. So I, I always slightly run paranoid on this thing. I think we just have to pay attention. And if you watch our digital competitors, what they've done best at, if they've listened to their re the readers, uh, much more acutely than perhaps, and we were a little bit slow on this, I think, in, in, in more legacy media. You know, we have come from a print legacy. Matt and I both came to the business when it was primarily a print product, where we kind of, we put things in a paper and we send it out and we, we're sort of telling you what you, we, we think is important. Part of the reason you're paying for this is our judgment. Uh, and then you came, got news organizations come along and said, actually, we're going to hear what the readers want first. And we're going to give them what they want, which is actually how most businesses work. And so I think we have to be better at listening to the readers. You've seen things like newsletters and podcasts and these other innovations have been incredibly successful. You know, we've started up, you know, any number of, of what we call verticals, but they're based on a newsletter uh, on a topic that readers talk about and, and they, they, they take off and we get sponsorship for them. We have to think more creatively about newsrooms are structured. I still think that my news organization is too much structured around newspaper. Um, you know, when I started up as news editor in, in London four years ago, we were still organized in four desks, essentially. The foreign desk, the UK desk, the company's desk, and the market's desk. And that was because we had foreign pages, UK pages, market's papers, and company's pages. Well, why are we still organized based on a newspaper uh, structure when it doesn't exist anymore? If you look at the digital competitors, they are surrounded by, they're organized by topics. Um, you know, they have a China uh, vertical, they have a Brexit vertical, they have a Trump vertical. Um, and trying to organize your newsroom around that, you know, again, the China story is a great one that, that Matt raised. You know, the China story is just not a China story. It is a China in the U.S. story. It's a China in the Europe story. It's in China in finance. It's China in, in, in culture, in Hollywood, and trying to harness those resources to be, again, uh, you know, in a, in a structure that gets those people talking in not a traditional newspaper structure. That's hard. It's hard for, for an organization that has a lot of people like Matt and I who, who, who came in uh, as print people and are a little bit wedded to it, but, but it has to be done. And I very, keep a very close eye on our, our digital competitors. I think they're, 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 there's always that risk that they get it better than we do. I'll quickly add because I know we're running over. Look, I think technology itself changing is, is, is in, I can't predict, I'm not good at predicting, Chris, where we are in five years. But even as we raise to up, update and adapt the technologies ahead of us. So, you know, in five years, Maybe the number one way people get journalism from the Wall Street Journal will be voice. Voice is half of Google searches now are on voice. Um, I think adapting more quickly to the change of technology is the job for any, while not losing the traits that made you what you are journalistically, is the task for any newsroom today, and it continues to evolve. So five years from now, I, I know it will be quite different. I'll add, um, you know, the, the downside of technology is a real challenge too. So deep fakes, which are starting to burst into the mainstream, are going to really test news organizations soon. 
and very seriously and, and challenge our reporting. There, there's a role for us because we could be the truth authenticators and verifiers in that kind of a world. But the continued evolution of technology itself is going to shape the future of the industry in five years. I, 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 you know, voice, I think, is the big one, but there are other things I'm sure I don't see. All right, we are out of time. I want to thank Peter Spiegel from the Financial Times and Matt Murray from the Wall Street Journal on joining us this week on the Quinnipiac University Speaker Series. Peter and Matt, thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having us. I really enjoyed it. I hope we didn't end your run of thoughtful comments. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, it was a good one while it lasted, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thanks. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Dean Chris Rausch's conversation with Matt Murray of the Wall Street Journal and Peter Spiegel of the Financial Times on managing two leading news publications during the pandemic and in the heated final months of this presidential election. The Way Forward event series is directed by Carla Natal and the podcast is produced by QU student Brian Murphy. To learn more about Quinnipiac's podcast studio and the stories we're telling, visit qu.edu slash podcast and check us out on Instagram and Twitter at qupodcasts. In our next episode, Quinnipiac's Dean of the School of Law, Jennifer Brown, hosts guests Betsy McLaughlin, board member of Veggie Grill and former CEO of Hot Topic, and Jack Hitt, food writer and contributing editor to the New York Times Magazine and This American Way. They discuss how the pandemic has changed the relationship many of us have with food and what the future holds for the restaurant industry. Join us on The Way Forward.